Hi, and welcome to Delta Dialogue. In this podcast, we talk about open data, open medical data, and AI from above and beyond, and explore its implications to our world. On the eighth episode of our series on open medical data, we discuss healthcare, open medical data, and AI. I'm your host, Emir Mustafa. I am joined today by my co-host and commentator, David Wood, and our guest speaker, Dr. Kate Tulenko. Kate is a globally recognized expert in health workforce and health system strengthening. She founded Corvus Health in response to the lack of full-service health workforce companies that could address health workforce challenges throughout the health worker life cycle. Previously, Kate served as Vice President Health Systems Innovation for IntraHealth International, as Director of Capacity Plus, the U.S. Agency for International Development's flagship Global Health Workforce Project, and as Coordinator of World Bank's Africa Health Workforce Program. Hi, Kate. Uh, Can you tell us about yourself and what you're currently working on? Well, first of all, Mir and uh, David, thank you so much. It's a, a pleasure to to be here. So my team and I are working on the, the global uh, health worker shortage. There's about an 18 million shortage globally of health workers, and this includes all types of health workers from community health workers, nurses, pharmacists, physicians, lab workers. And um, part of the reason for this shortage is it costs more to train health workers than any other type of skilled worker. You know, it costs more and longer to train them versus uh, you know, computer engineers or coders or lawyers or um, you know, agriculture tech uh, folks. So that expense and that length has made governments uh, less willing to invest in them. Uh, and, and that's part of the reason why we've arrived at this shortage. And so uh, my team is, is currently launching an ed tech platform called Appleseed Education, uh, which uh, it, it will help digitize health professional schools, get them online and help them scale up uh, and improve their their quality. Uh, you know, certainly the COVID uh, pandemic was an acute on chronic health worker shortage. Uh, told everyone that the need to act was now, especially with global aging uh, and the aging of Europe and North America. Uh, they're going to have roughly ten times the healthcare needs, uh, but they won't have the the skilled labor. They won't have the young people uh, to do that work. That's what I wanted to ask as well. Is that as founder of Corvus Health? Can you tell us more about the specific challenges in the health workforce and health systems that led you to create uh, the company? So there's certainly challenges across the entire health labor market, or what we often call the the health worker life cycle. So those would include uh, challenges of data and analysis. Most low and middle income countries don't even have the data on where their health workers are, you know, what they're doing, how they're performing, how long they plan to to work in their careers. Uh, just to give an example, um, when my uh, team was working in the Dominican Republic about five years ago we found about 6,000 ghost workers. These are just fake workers who were on the payroll. And by being able to remove those, those um, ghost workers because we got accurate data and were able to uh, match payrolls with who was actually at the facility level, we were able to uh, save the Dominican Republic about $9 million a year, which enabled them to hire more real health workers and pay those health workers more. So that's an example of a data and research challenge that countries have. And also most um, governments have no idea how many health workers are in the private sector. They tend to only keep track of the, the public sector. And then if you look at regulation and, and policy, um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Uh, for example, uh, just two years ago, 
uh, my team had the, the once in a lifetime uh, opportunity to help Somalia craft its first ever health workforce policy. They surprisingly didn't have any policy on what's a physician, what's a nurse, what's a medical school, what's a nursing school, what does it take to remove someone's medical license? So we helped them uh, design that, that policy because that type of policy shapes the, the health labor market and the health system that you're going to have. You know, we also do a lot of work with health professional associations and, and unions. Um, we've seen an incredible increase in strikes. For example, the Royal College of Nursing in the UK struck, for, I think, for the first time ever uh, uh, this year. And uh, we're seeing just a lot of understandable dissatisfaction with, with wages in, in this, uh, um, you know, very high inflation, inflationary environment, as well as, um, you know, working conditions, in, including the shortage of health workers, meaning everyone has to work longer hours uh, with more patients. And so we work to, to help support unions and governments uh, to keep everyone happy and working and help with health professional associations to help professionalize them because they, they can be a real asset uh, to a country. We also work across the four forms of education. So in, in health labor markets, uh, we speak of pre-service education, which is what makes you a health worker. So that would be you know, medical school, nursing school, pharmacy school, you know, um, allied health professional school. And then there's postgraduate education. So that would be you know, surgery residency or um, you know, an ENT fellowship or for a nurse, you're getting an OR uh, certificate to, to work in an operating theater, an operating room. And then we have continuing professional development, which is the required training that um, regulatory associations require health workers to do, usually on an annual basis, to um, you know to keep their uh, their licenses. So those are the three regulatory regulated forms of education. The fourth form of education is called in-service training, and this is just the, the training usually employers, public and private give to their employees to, to keep up their skills, to help them advance their careers, to, you know, to keep up morale. Uh, so we work across all four types of education. We also do work in, in recruitment of health workers. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about that, but um, especially when you look at global recruitment, it can be a very high risk situation, especially for lower level uh, women health workers. Um, you know, we've all read articles about, um, you know, in-home health workers, you know, being abused, having their passports taken away from them. Um, and, and so we need to create uh, more reliable, trusted platforms for that type of recruitment. Uh, we work with... Um, uh, in the provision of healthcare, helping design more efficient teams. The, the nurse physician model is a very outdated model. Uh, most teams, you know, need close to a dozen, you know, types of health workers on the team to be um, more efficient. Um, we help improve quality of care. Uh, we help um, reduce burnout, increase health worker resilience, um, you know, prevent dropout. And then um, finally, we, we help countries with managed migration uh, because we know that, you know, with low and middle income countries, you know, having for many of them 50% of their population below the age of 30, that they will be able to, you know, provide that skilled labor for um, North America and Europe, which, you know, every year, you know, are aging and, and just don't have the labor pools needed to train enough health workers. That's a fascinating set of projects regarding the four forms of education and your Appleseed Education Initiative to put some of this online. Do you think that all four of these types of education can be improved by online mechanisms, the sort that uh, are increasingly visible? 
Absolutely, with, without a doubt. Um, we are currently focusing on the, um, the pre-service education institutions, but those institutions do the other forms of education as well. So, you know, many nursing schools, in addition to the pre-service education, they provide the postgraduate education as well for nurses, the continuing professional development and the in-service training. So, so yes, we, we certainly think that we can uh, expand and improve all forms of education. And, you know, certainly with um, online education, you know, we do have to be careful that it's high quality, that it's interactive, that it does not result in, you know, people feeling more isolated. Uh, so so it, it does need to do, be done in a high quality way. And of course, you know, what differentiates health worker training versus the training of any other type of, of worker is the hands-on component. I mean, you certainly don't want to be operated on by a surgeon who has only, you know, done things virtually, <laughs> you know, who is, who's only, you know, watched videos or maybe, you know, done something on a, a simulator. You want someone who, who's actually, you know, performed surgeons, sur a surgery. Uh, and, and that's the same really for all other types of, of health workers, that there will, will be always a significant in-person, hands-on component with patients. In other words, it may sound a simple thing to do to say, let's take advantage of online training. But the reality is there's a whole bunch of things that can go wrong unless people really understand what's involved. Yes, it has to be very well planned and, and, and very thought out because healthcare is a, is a team sport. And, you know, if you're trained in isolation and you you don't learn how to form effective working relationships with, with your own profession, much less the other professions, it's going to be very difficult for you to, to practice well. I wanted to briefly ask you about the remarkable statistic you shared earlier, that because of aging populations, the requirements for health care might increase up to tenfold. And if there are already shortages, and certainly in the UK where I live, we are always in the news hearing about shortages left, right, and center. If it's gonna be 10 times as worse, and that's almost an existential crisis. So are politicians hearing this? Are they reacting? Are they saying, please help us? Or are they sticking their heads in the sand and saying, the, well, let's think about something else? You know, it, it's a really, uh, it's difficult to understand why this crisis uh, hasn't been addressed. Uh, there are a number of different reasons. Uh, one is um, a lot of governments have um, gone with short-term uh, approaches, and often these approaches make the whole situation worse. In fact, someone was just telling me the other day about in France, when they had a shortage maybe uh, 10, 20 years ago, they responded by very rapidly training um, new health workers who were very low quality, ended up only working you know, a short number of years because since their skills didn't match the needs of the job, they didn't enjoy their their jobs because they always felt like they were they were failing, and, and so now they've degraded the status of these professions, um, and they still haven't improved the quality of the education. So they're just kind of in a worse off um, position. Um, and a lot of countries, you know, think they can solve the problem, you know, just by hiring uh, from overseas. Um, and, and so you you have the situation in, in the U.S. and the U.K where you have um, minority youth often three to 10 times more likely to be unemployed. Um, and then at the same time, we're hiring away the best and the brightest from, from low and middle income countries. And so it's, it's just, um, it's kind of a nonsensical uh, solution. 
And also it takes longer to train health workers. It, you know, a, a good coder you can train up in six months or a year. You know, pediatric neurosurgeon takes 15 years of formal education, you know, beyond high school uh, to train. So uh, it, it's, it's a huge, you know, time and, and monetary investment. And I do think that, you know, telemedicine and AI will, will help a great deal with this and will be incredible adjuncts. But, you know, it, it'll be at least a, a century before a robot will be able to do, you know, a surgery completely by itself without the, the, the aid of a, of a knowledgeable human. Uh, so so I, I see all these things as adjuncts and not as replacements. I wanted to actually touch upon a thing that you also mentioned. We've talked about uh, how you guys also address the health workforce challenges. But one of the things I wanted to ask is what makes the approach of Corvus Health that you know, while addressing the health workforce challenges throughout the health worker life cycle, what makes it a unique and innovative approach? I think there are a couple of things that make us unique. The first is that we're really the only uh, a group that that's working across the entire uh, labor market. Uh, the other things that make us unique are, you know, the, the depth of our experience um, and our networks and also the creativity uh, that we we bring to it and our willingness to to work across sectors. Uh, I was very lucky that uh, quite early in my career when I was um, at the World Bank and had entered through their management training program, I had a chance to rotate through a number of different uh, sectors and offices. And for about a year and a half, I got to be the only uh, health professional in the infrastructure department. So I was doing infrastructure, uh, health and um, transportation, health and extractive industries, uh, health and, um, you know, the power and energy uh, sector. So really got to see how health could work with all these sectors and how all those sectors affected health and, and also the different types of solutions that these sectors had and the different ways of thinking they had that were, you know, were different from the, the health sector. And so that allowed me to kind of get out of the health sector box and, and you know, really think of, uh, of other solutions. And, and so uh, in Corvus Health, we've been able to be extremely creative uh, in our solutions and, and offer, um, you know, cost-effective solutions that, uh, that no one else is offering. Yeah. And, you know, I've also read upon the vision and mission of Corvus Health. And, you know, I've, I've realized that access to timely, reliable data on health workers is a crucial component of your company's mission. Can you elaborate on the importance of data in the health workforce planning and how Corvus Health uh, utilizes data to inform its strategies? Certainly. So um, if you look at uh, data and planning, there's a number of different ways that um, the health workforce can be planned. You can look at um, just historical data and, and say, OK, we've, we've always had you know, X number of uh, physicians here. If the population is increasing by 10 percent, we need to increase that number by by 10 percent. That's probably the simplest uh, way of doing it. Or you can do more in-depth time motion studies and, and see, you know, what are nurses uh, spending their time on? How many patients are they able to, to see and think, well, can we add another person to their team? I don't think that a bachelor's level nurse should be changing bedpans. Uh, you know, so I often advocate for the introduction of um, lower level assistants, you know, who do the feeding, the bathing, what we often call the activities of daily living, which uh, allow that bachelor's level nurse to practice at the top of her license and being um, doing 
doing more than medication management, you know, the patient assessment, uh, and, you know, making sure that the, the, the medical plan for the patient is being properly um, implemented. Um, you also can um, plan health workforce um, in a way that's um, need-based. So you can look, for example, where are maternal deaths occurring? Because uh, that tells you you need to put more midwives and um, obstetricians there. Uh, so there are a variety of different ways you can do that type of planning. And frankly, for many countries, it's just what you can afford, uh, you know, and, and how can you, you know, how can you afford to, to keep workers in certain areas? Because unless you're doing a really good job of um, recruiting and training people locally, you have to pay a great deal of money to retain people in, in rural and remote areas. I can see the potential here because instead of having to train everybody 15 years, there may be options to train people much less and still do very useful roles. So a lot of what doctors used to be done, used to do, can now be done by pharmacists in some cases, can be done by nurses. As you point out, there's different levels of nurses, but this needs a proper understanding of what each person can actually do and what they can't do. In part, it's for more fulfilling work so that people will be more, uh, feel better at work because they're able to demonstrate their true talent. It avoids stretching people and putting them in roles that they can't do. So this data collection is clearly important. The more data we have, the more creative we can be in carving up the teams in different ways. Exactly. And, you know, one mistake that's often made is, um, say, a new treatment becomes available that's just plopped down on the existing teams without thinking, well, okay, if it's going to take the nurse 15 minutes a patient to do this new thing, what's going to fall by the wayside? Because, you know, you, you can't just keep on piling up and piling up and expect the health worker to be able to do all of that to the same level of quality. But, you know, speaking to what you said about, you know, adding new members of the team or, you know, reassigning uh, certain um, roles. Uh, for the last 10 years, I've been getting my flu shot from my pharmacist, you know, who's just two blocks away from my home. So I don't have to drive, you know, 30 minutes just to get uh, you know, my flu shot from the nurse at my main physician's office. So, you know, I think that everyone and everyone saw during COVID how effective, uh, you know, pharmacy based vaccination could be. Uh, you know, another example is actually um, uh, just earlier this week, uh, I was talking um, uh, to a ministry of health in Africa, and they really want to improve um, their cancer care. And they're starting with breast cancer, which is the, the most um, common form of, of cancer, of sort of curable, addressable cancer um, that they have in the country. And we were discussing the possibility of uh, creating breast cancer nurse practitioners, because there's such a high volume of breast cancer patients that you can have you know, nurses who just focus on that. And so you won't have to train them as long you know, than if you tried to basically turn them into an oncologist and you know, someone who would take, every, take care of every type of cancer. And, you know, we, we see that in the UK and the US too. For example, in the US, um, you know, uh, most women in urban areas, um, when they get a mastectomy for breast cancer, the person who performs that is a breast cancer surgeon. That is all they do. They're not a general surgeon. They're not a cancer surgeon. They're a breast cancer surgeon. And, and we see that these are the people who have the best outcomes because the evidence shows the more a health worker does a specific task, the, the higher level of quality and also the more efficiently they're able to do that task. 
Moving on to the data and AI segment, there's one question I'm aching to ask is, uh, is as a globally recognized expert in health workforce and health system strengthening, how do you see the potential of AI and open medical data in addressing the challenges in health workforce planning and management? Yeah, I think that uh, open medical data and AI can help in every stage of the health workforce life cycle from, you know, like so the planning and, and analysis stage. Uh, you know, to the education stage, to actual care. Uh, for, for education, you know, one of our partners in Appleseed is, is Lecturio, which is an online platform for nursing medical education. And they use AI to adjust the content based on how the student responds to questions. So for example, if I'm studying, you know, tropical infectious diseases and I'm always getting the questions on malaria right, they'll give me less content and less questions, fewer questions on, on malaria. But if I'm always getting the schistomiasis questions wrong, they'll give me more content on schistomiasis and, and more questions uh, on schistomiasis. So that, that type of um, it's sort of an individualization or personalization of the education uh, has been shown to get higher, higher, better educational outcomes much faster and also with, um, with better student satisfaction that the students uh, enjoy it. And then certainly on the, the practice side. Um, with artificial intelligence, you know, if patients are able to, you know, maybe speak to an AI chatbot and get a lot of, you know, their history into that, then, the, you know, the physician can, can look at that, ask a few pointed questions, focus on the physical, uh, you know, that, you know, depending on the complexity of the case could save, you know, 15 minutes to half an hour uh, for every patient. Or, you know, if AI can, you know, take the patient's, um, you know, symptoms and, and laboratory values and come up with a differential diagnosis of, you know, what, what the potential diagnosis might be, as well as, you know, possible um, further testing to verify the diagnosis or a potential care plan that, um, you know, the, the physician or the um, uh, nurse practitioner signs off on. And one of the, the, the missions, actually, of your company says, it says here that it's to provide affordable health workforce services in a sustainable way. Uh, I wanted to ask, how does AI and open medical data contribute to the sustainability and scalability of your uh, solutions? I think by um, helping the health workers work more efficiently. So say without AI, um, you know, I can only see four patients per hour at, you know, at a given level of quality. So maybe I now have um, an AI scribe. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that really has made medicine in the U.S. very difficult is they started to, to um, make physicians um, write in electronic medical records, but did not give them any extra time with the patient. Um, so you now have this situation where you're talking to the physician and they're like this. <laughs> you know, recording. And there's been lots of studies that the physician spends more time with the computer than with the patient. Um, and, and so if you're able to move to an AI um, scribe that, that fills in the electronic medical record for the physician, you know, by, you know, listening to the patient, maybe some commands uh, from the physician, the physician can actually make eye contact with the patient, build that relationship 
uh, spend more time with the, the patient, have a you know better um, better content in the electronic medical record, and um, you know better uh, doctor um, patient relationship and better outcomes in, in general. So certainly that that's um, that's one way with the the efficiency. You know the other type of efficiency is is as I mentioned on the differential diagnosis and the um, the care plan. Uh, you know if if AI can suggest uh, what that plan is, the physicians can get go through and say, well, that makes sense, that doesn't make sense, and, and kind of do the first draft of everything. Because as we know, it's, it's often much easier to respond to a first draft of something than to, you know, take care of a, you know, a blank page. But, but I think that in most countries, the major challenge is going to be the legal liability. And, um, you know, as we know, science usually advances faster than, than regulation and the law. And so what happens if, you know, AI sort of does something for a patient and it's wrong? You know, who's liable? Is it the the physician who was sort of overlooking it? Is it the the maker of that AI software? Is it the hospital that employed the physician in the AI and, and, and purchased the AI software? And I think until that gets sorted out, which eventually it will, will be in a, a gray area, a very sort of uh, legally dangerous gray area. And I think you will see a lot of health workers uh, who will be reluctant to use AI until that, that legal risk has been resolved for them. And are people working on solutions to these legal risks? Because the upsides, if they can be solved, are significant. Yeah, there, there certainly are, are uh, mainly academics um, who are working on it, but you know, as I think you've seen just last month, um, Elon Musk and, and several other uh, tech leaders, you know, signed a letter sort of warning us about AI. So uh, it, it's a you know a bit of a, a difficult field. And, um, you know, I think that some countries certainly, you know, I think of, of Latvia, which is one of the most digitized countries in the world. So, you know, some countries have started to look at, you know, at legal frameworks around this, but it's quite difficult. I mean, in the U.S., even just the on social media and how a social media is or is not responsible for what gets gets posted is a huge area of debate. And, and you know, our Congress is, is looking at it now to, to see how it might be changed. So in many ways, you know, the, the, the tech is moving faster than our society can move. You mentioned Latvia as having in some ways some um, leg up. I know you interact with healthcare systems in quite a few parts of the world. Where are you most encouraged? Where do you see perhaps the best practice that the rest of us around the world should be learning from? Hmm. Hi. Probably um, two of the best practices. One would be Thailand, where they, like all other countries, had a huge you know shortage and a maldistribution. No one wanted to work in the in the rural areas. And they made you know a concerted effort to recruit and train young people from those underserved communities and actually paid them more. In fact, a, a general physician in a remote area gets paid as much as like a director in the Ministry of Health. So, so it's it, it, they really are quite incentivized. They also have um, for um, uh physicians who got scholarships from the, the government, they have to do a workout or what's often called bonding. Um, so they, for example, if, if you were report, or you're supported by the scholarship for six years, you have to work for the government for six years. Or if you decide you don't want to, you can pay back the amount 
um, that they invested in you. And, and so all these extremely well thought out um, uh, policies have worked out very well for, for Thailand. Um, and then another country that's been doing uh, very well is, is Ethiopia. Uh, despite you know some of the other challenges that they have, um, they they really have understood the the labor market and that um, labor markets for uh, physicians and nurses are global. And an Ethiopian physician makes about a thousand dollars a month. And of, of course, a physician can easily make that a day or more uh, in the UK or the US. And, and Ethiopia just is not able to pay more, either in the public or the private sector. So they've recognized that and they have adopted a, a, an approach of what they call flooding the market. The idea is that if they need to say a thousand new physicians a year, they'll graduate 4,000 new physicians a year. Maybe, um, you know, 3,000 of them will go to South Africa, Botswana, you know, um, higher income African countries, maybe a thousand will go to uh, the UK and the US, but they'll still have a thousand left in in Ethiopia. Uh, So they they realized that they had to um, address parts of their um, medical school regulation, which was making it impossible to start private medical schools or impossible to expand existing public medical schools. And also every year they reach out to their different districts to find out how many you know, pharmacists do you think they'll need to hire next year? Or what do you think your need will be for lab techs? And then in the public sector, they train accordingly. So it's really, it's recognizing that they're producing an output which has a, a purchaser and that you have to have a dialogue with that purchaser. Uh, because if you, you know, train people just to have them be unemployed, you know, that on several levels is just unethical. Uh, so you have to make sure that, that there are jobs available for people. Thank you for listening to the Delta Dialogue. Here's what you'll find on the next episode of the Delta Dialogue. That might be a hard sell because there's a, you know, there's a lot of suspicion about what's going to be done with medical data. How is it going to be misused? We also need to, most countries need to dramatically strengthen the penalties for um, misusing data for, you know, either blackmailing people or um, committing insurance fraud. This episode is brought to you by the UN, a tech community focused on artificial intelligence in healthcare, machine learning, and related disciplines. I am Amir Mustafa, and see you next time.